Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. A few notes before we get started. This is Episode 4. If you're just coming to the story, I suggest you go back and listen from the beginning. Everything will make a lot more sense. Also, this podcast has content about sexual violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. For information or resources, go to www.rainn.org. Finally, a note about the use of the term sexual assault in this series. Sexual assault has a colloquial meaning and can also be a legal term. Its legal definition varies across the U.S. and in different countries, including in Spain. In this podcast, when a woman describes what happened to her, we use the terms and descriptions she has used in her words. I think when this hasn't happened to you before and when you haven't really had other friends go through this, there isn't really a dialogue or a way that feels like easy to tell people. It's very hard to weave into a conversation and it's also a very vulnerable thing to just out of the blue talk about. So I think that's probably what I struggle with most. Last time on Motive, Erin told us how she believes Manuel used drugs to sexually assault her. I physically couldn't get my legs to move or get my arms to move. Then, Gabrielle Vega and her dad got in contact with the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. A few months later, they found out that a criminal investigation had been opened in Spain. They scrambled to figure out what to do next. There were so many questions that I couldn't really give anyone a straight answer. It's like a black hole getting information. One of the things Gabrielle knew she needed to do as a first step was to get the women to make official police reports. But most of them, including herself, had never done that. Why not? Well, as Gabrielle says... That's, like, honestly the million-dollar question. The spreadsheet Gabrielle made to keep track of all of the women who contacted her dates back to 2009. And it goes until 2017. That means for at least eight years, almost no one said anything to authorities. Not in Spain, not when they got back to the U.S. For at least eight years, whether the women say... He raped them, sexually harassed them, or forced them to touch him in ways she didn't want to. He walked away. And the silence continued. There's really no protection or, like, oversight for girls, like, abroad. We were young, and we were in a foreign land. He chose people who were in a vulnerable situation. I think that was part of his plan. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Candace Mattel-Khan. This is Motive. Episode 4, Can't Tell Anyone. And she she didn't go to law yeah. enforcement. What kind of woman doesn't say, I want to protect my sisters out there? Ford says the assault defined her entire life. Apparently she thought about it every day. And yet she says she told not a single other human being about it for fully 30 years. How can that be? It's an argument we hear all the time when someone comes forward after years of silence. Why didn't she tell anyone? And I cannot believe that this woman suddenly remembered now. 
Why didn't she go to the police when it happened? Why'd she wait so long to speak about it? This is for attention. If what she's alleging is actually true, the thinking goes, she would have said something right away. While that might sound logical, according to one of the largest anti-sexual violence organizations, which relies on data from several government agencies, just 23% of all sexual assaults are ever reported to police. That means three out of four go unreported. And in Spain, the numbers are strikingly similar. Until Gabrielle appeared on TV, almost none of the women on her spreadsheet had reported what happened to them. And many of them told no one at all. I wanted to know, why didn't these young women feel like they could speak out when this first happened to them? Where does this silence come from? You're going to hear a lot of different women on today's episode, and it might seem overwhelming or like you've heard these stories before. But that's because there are a lot of women on Gabrielle's spreadsheet. And out of the 26 women we spoke with, 24 of them did not report to police. I just never spoke about it again. Sophie Forsmark spent the year after high school living abroad in Spain. She worked for Manuel that year. She says one night he offered to drive her home. She was grateful since it was raining and it was a long walk home. Before he took her home, she says they stopped at a club near where his car was parked because Manuel wanted to say hi to some friends. At the club, they all convinced Sophie to take a shot of vodka. Come on, let's... Let's just do one and then we'll go home. I took one shot. And the next thing I remember was being in his car down in the parking lot. Sophie says she's positive she was drugged. He was forcing me to put it in my mouth and he was holding my head and trying to touch me and wanting to take my clothes off. And I remember... Just a few moments from this, and that was me, like, really saying, no, 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 I really don't want to. And I remember he's, like, continuing and saying, let me fulfill you, or something like that. Sophie's next memory is of suddenly being at home and getting into bed. She didn't know where her bra or her shirt was. I remember when I woke up. I think it was around... 10 a.m. or something. And I remember thinking, what just happened? I, I, am, I do not remember what happened. And this, like, who am I going to tell? Like, who's going to believe me? Well, you're young and of course you got drunk or I don't know. Yeah, I really thought who was going to believe me. So I didn't tell anyone. Like Sophie, so many of these women didn't think anyone would believe them. And that fear is one of the most common reasons why women don't report. Who wants to be called a liar? Katha Hoffer has been working with survivors of sexual assault for more than 30 years. She runs the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. If you have reason to believe that you will be treated like a liar like somebody who is not credible, why would you do that? Especially if you are already enduring the consequences of a trauma that you can't go back in time and undo. 
Hoffer says women have good reason to believe they will be treated like a liar. That's how she's seen it play out in a lot of the cases she's worked on, mostly in Illinois. When women have gone to the police there, she says their accusations often aren't taken seriously. There's an 11% arrest rate for reported rapes. 89 out of every 100 rapes reported to the police result in not a damn thing happening to him. And while Sophie might not have known any specific statistics, she might have had a feeling about how it could play out. So why go through the agony and embarrassment of telling authorities what happened to you? The evidence is quite clear that a response that actually treats a rape report as credible is wildly unusual rather than the norm anywhere. And on top of that fear, that no one, even the police, would believe them, many of the women we talked to also said they had difficulty putting what happened to them into words. They had heard about sexual assault, but somehow weren't able to reconcile those words with their own experience. It was a different experience than I've ever had in my life. I've been drunk before, and this felt, it felt really different. In last week's episode, you heard Erin describe in detail what she says it felt like to be drugged and sexually assaulted by Manuel in the stairwell of her apartment building in Seville. She never went to the police. She says she didn't think what happened to her matched what society had taught her about rape. It felt like I would be claiming something that I didn't have the right to claim because it wasn't as violent as the words seemed like they were supposed to be. I mean, my conceptions of what assault was were the things that you see in movies or the things that, you know, are on Law and Order SVU. Like, this was a stranger in an alley and it was an attack and there was a knife. And, the, the you know, these images that you have of what assault is supposed to be and then the reality of what happened to me, it didn't line up. The way rape unfolds is in such conflict with the way in which most people have previously been encouraged to understand what is meant by rape. Again, Katha Hoffer. There is very rarely any level of physical violence that meets the normal or typical understanding of what violence is. If we would only spend more time listening to the descriptions, the actual descriptions that survivors bravely tell, we would understand that the difference between sex and rape is rarely going to be visible from 20 yards. For a long time, Erin wasn't able to really describe to anyone what happened to her. She remembers struggling to talk to her roommate about it the morning after. What do you think you wanted to say explicitly? That I'd been assaulted, that he'd done something to me against my will, and that it wasn't okay. And what did you find yourself saying instead? I said, something happened, and she said, well, what's going on? And I was like, something happened with Manuel Blanco, and she said what do you mean, like something bad? And I was like, yes, something bad. And she said, did he force himself on you? And I said, I can't talk about this anymore. 
Rape is a word that carries a profound shock and horror and stigma. It was hard to put those words into the world. I just, I couldn't face the categorization of it. Just as men don't want to be called rapists, right? So too, women want to avoid the stigma of having been raped. Erin wasn't the only woman who struggled with the terms and what they might mean. A lot of the women who say they were sexually assaulted by Manuel felt like somehow what they experienced wasn't, quote, bad enough to report. In 2017, while studying abroad in Seville, Tori Zile says she went out to dinner with Manuel and two friends. They all went back to his apartment afterwards to hang out. Tori says Manuel grabbed her hands and started kissing her. I would, like, pull back a little bit, and he'd pull me forward. And then I was, like, pulling back again, and he was like, come on, like, you're going to leave me hard. And I was like, I don't care. So he was like, no, come on, like, let's go to my bedroom. Like, it'll be fun. And I was like, no, I don't want to go to your bedroom. And at that point, he was, like, holding my wrists and, like, started dragging me to his room. And I remember, like, my feet being planted in the floor and... Like, I was really confused because I had never said, like, no so many times and someone still just, like, completely disregard what I was saying. I remember, like, him pulling me to his room and he shut the door behind us. He started, like, trying to take my clothes off. And I I remember, like, thinking, like, is this, like, actually happening? Like, is this the part, like, where I get raped? Tori says her friend came into the bedroom at that moment, and they were both able to leave. Afterwards, Tori says she Googled how to report sexual assault, but she ultimately decided not to. She said she was worried her experience didn't have the, quote, qualifications for what reporting a sexual assault would merit. And then there was the self-doubt. Many of the women blamed themselves for getting into a, quote, stupid situation. They thought they were the ones who were responsible for what happened. Somehow, it was their fault. None of my friends, even the ones that knew him, really blamed him either. Catherine, who asked us not to use her real name, says that one night in 2012, she went out with some friends to a club night in Seville. It was organized by Manuel's tour company, Discover Excursions. She had a couple of drinks. Then her memory went out until the next morning. When she woke up at Manuel's apartment. I was in a bed, a strange bed that I had never seen before. When I was coming to consciousness, I had like rolled over towards Manuel and I was very confused. Catherine says she grabbed her dress that was hanging over Manuel's couch and left while he was still asleep. I asked her what happened to her that night. I don't know. I'm trying to think of how to put it into words. Um, I don't know how to put it into words. Do you believe you were raped? Oh, yes. And it it wasn't vaginal. It hurt to sit down, um... One thing I actually do remember, too, is my dress was very dirty. 
I definitely threw it away, and it was one of my favorite dresses. Catherine didn't go to the police. After all, she thought. She was out drinking that night. She was friendly with Manuel and the other tour guides. She'd gone out with them before. I mean, I I thought that him and the other boys were pretty attractive. You know, I know I'd flirted with with boys in Spain. I mean, I was... So I did kind of, like, blame myself in a way because of that. There was just a lot of confusion and sadness and regret and blaming myself. Catherine says she felt so ashamed that she didn't even tell her boyfriend at the time. I had wondered if if I could be considered a cheater. I mean, when I say blame, I, I think I wasn't sure about any of it. So there's... Like, always that that little piece of, could I have played a part in this? Catherine was grappling with these kinds of questions and thoughts, mostly on her own. Far from home, family, and anything familiar. All of these women were. And that, on top of the fear, stigma, and self-doubt, made it even harder for them to go to the authorities in Spain. And many believe Manuel knew that. That's next. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I didn't know, like, how to get a rape kit, how to contact the police. I didn't really know what to do. I was in a foreign country. If this had happened to me at home, I might have had the confidence to go and talk to the police and actually file a report. I mean, I don't know, but it certainly wasn't going to happen in Spain because I didn't know how to do that. I don't know any of the vocabulary that you would use to talk about anything in the legal system or anything regarding assault. It's a really perfect mixture for somebody who's looking to take advantage of that. The hurdles to reporting in a foreign country just seemed insurmountable. Most of these women had only been in Spain a couple of months. Many of them were away from home for the very first time. They didn't have friends in Spain. They didn't have family in Spain. They didn't speak the language, and they certainly didn't understand much about the Spanish justice system. You know, I was pushing her to respectfully to contact the police. She didn't want to do that. Aaron's dad, Stephen, said that when Aaron called and told him what happened, his first thought was to go to the authorities. But Aaron told him no. And the other thing we talked about was either my wife or I coming to be with her, and she didn't want that to happen either. I think she was a little afraid of what I might do. We have a very good friend who's in the elite police force for Spain, and I think she made me promise that I wouldn't get a hold of him because she didn't want to take that step at that point. She didn't feel that would either be taken totally seriously like it should. I think she was afraid that she'd be blamed. Stephen says he listened to his daughter and didn't push her any further. That's one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make, but... Um, I love my daughter, and 
When you love somebody, uh, you have to honor how they want to deal with things. Another woman who didn't want her name to be used says Manuel raped her in 2017. But she, like Aaron, was afraid of what might happen at the police station. I was assuming they would say, oh, you didn't say no. Well, you could have, and so that's not really rape. And you didn't try to fight back. You didn't run away. He bought you a cab home. Like, all of those things, like, don't sound like assault. And so I thought that if I were to go to them with just that scenario, it would go nowhere. Years went by, and so many of the women we spoke to stayed silent. Occasionally, some of them talked about it with a few close friends, a therapist, a family member. But for the most part, they say they tried to bury it. Bury it and move on. But in April of 2018, that all changed. When Gabrielle, along with two others, went on the Megyn Kelly Today show and accused Manuel of rape and sexual assault... So many of the women, like the ones you've heard in this episode, decided, for the first time, to speak up. Finally, they felt like their story was credible. There were others with the same experience. And many, like Tori, felt obligated not only to speak up for themselves, but to help the other women. After I heard that Manuel had negatively impacted so many women. Like, I wanted justice for them. Like, I wanted justice for, like, the entire system. If I can contribute anything to that justice, I want to, like, do my part. For Catherine, seeing the other stories made her feel like she didn't need to second-guess herself anymore. The fact that so many other women have similar stories to mine, I'm able to put the pieces together. And my doubt that... I was drugged by somebody that I knew and that I trusted. Um, That doubt was incorrect. Sophie says seeing the TV segment was a relief. When I heard their story, I was like, okay, yep, that happened to me as well. I remember Gabrielle also getting into specific what happened to her or what he did to her and... It was very familiar. I felt very relieved. Like, okay, I'm not in this by myself, you know. And now I can finally start talking about it. After seeing Gabrielle's interview, Sophie, who hadn't spoken about her rape in nearly four years, decided to post a screenshot of the show on Instagram. She tagged Manuel's account in the post. And he called me straight away, Manuel, and said, Sophie, what is all this? And he said, can you please remove it? Please, this is not good for me. You have to be on my side right now. And I said, I will never protect you. I will never, I will never be on your side. You know what you did. You know exactly what you did. And he said, Sophie, I don't remember anything. And I said, you remember exactly what you did to me. And I'm not on your side. Your, your game is over. After Sophie contacted Gabrielle, she typed up her statement, as Gabrielle instructed. 
he's really not getting away with this. And now, now the fire is starting. It felt really good. And it wasn't just Sophie. It's what so many of the women who contacted Gabrielle did. For the first time, they wrote down the words, knowing that other people would read them, that the authorities would read them. But this time, they wanted people to read them. I definitely want him to go to jail for a very long time. I I really want him to get a sentence, go to jail. I really want him locked up, and I really want him far away from girls. I want him to be locked up for the rest of his life and never be able to see another female again. Though most of these women didn't know each other, they live all over the country, they've never met. They felt like they were in it together. By coming forward, they were supporting one another. So even though they never wanted to speak about what happened to them, together, they could seek justice. But that proved to be much harder than anyone anticipated. For almost a year after the women submitted their statements to the U.S. Embassy in Madrid, they didn't hear anything from authorities. I've gotten no updates since then from, like, officials in either country. You know, there are different rules in Spain and that this is just going very slow. It's been a very slow process since the initial statements were sent in and the initial contact. I really cannot believe how, how it can go so slow. The women heard through Gabrielle that an investigation was open, but it didn't seem like anything was moving forward. They hadn't been questioned by any investigator or prosecutor in Spain. Manuel hadn't been charged or arrested. As they waited to hear news from the U.S. Embassy, from Spanish authorities, from the FBI, from anybody, many of the women, like Gabrielle, couldn't help but wonder if things would have been different they had just reported it to police years ago. Would it have made a difference? Well, two women who say they were sexually assaulted by Manuel in May of 2017 did go to the police in Spain. When we got back to Valencia, we told our school what happened and went to the police. What happened? That's next time. You know, we waited patiently for our case to be investigated. And then the days just kept rolling on and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. The show is produced by me, Candace Mattel-Khan. The editor is Alexandra Solomon. Additional reporting in Spain by Carmen Ibanez Espinoza. The executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Our intern is Isabel Carter. The show is mixed by Colin McNulty and Shelley Steffens. Thanks to the listeners whose financial support of WBEZ made this podcast possible. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? 
Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts.